I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yi. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. So how fun was it to go to Sausalito to interview our next guest? I absolutely loved it. I always love the opportunity to get near the water. We weren't on the water, but the atmosphere of the water for health and wellness, it just felt so apropos. What do you think, Jay? Apropos. Apropos. (laughs) You know, this main reason why I'll never, probably will never live anywhere where there's no body of water. Mm. Because growing up in San Francisco is just... That briny, salty air. Even when I land at SFO yeah. airport, yes, and I get off the plane and I take a breath in, I'm like, I'm home. I'm home, yeah, right? I feel the same way. Yeah. It's very. We're lucky. It's very we special. Are lucky. Yeah. And yeah. so to be able to do our interview in Sausalito with our next guest, which is David Murano, who happens to be my yoga instructor. Yes. Tell us about David. So David is really funny, and I've been taking his class for about four years. I'm very religious about it. I go every single Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. I usually get there at 9, 10, which he doesn't really like, but I'm, what can I say? (laughs) And I just, I mean, I love it. It's really important for me to take yoga. It calms me down. It centers me. It takes care of whatever was going on all week. I do it Saturday morning, and I just love it. You know, I used to do yoga all the time. I used to manage a corporate gym and we had it all the time. And one of my funniest moments is being all sweaty and I'm in this crow pose on my hands and my knees are trying to balance on top of my elbows. And all of a sudden, you know, it's peaceful. And there's this loud boom. And it was me. Jay's on the floor. I'm on the floor. And not only that, I broke the silence and the concentration. I just laughed out loud. Oh, man. <laughs> but I picked it back up on and off throughout the years recently, if not been practicing. I don't do it as regularly. I, before the pandemic, I would go very regularly. And then it became more of a home practice. But I think it's very, very important. And this conversation that we're about to have with David, it just fills so much of my heart. Yay! <laughs> For our health, wellness, food, and drink series, it seemed very important to include yoga in this series. And there is no better person when it comes to yoga than David Moreno. David Moreno has taught yoga internationally at festivals, conferences, and in-depth teacher training. He also has been teaching regularly in the San Francisco Bay Area for over 30 years. David also does meditation workshops and meditation retreats in the Zen Center in Marin County. David has a classical dance background, and he enjoys weaving in his dance background with his yoga teaching. David has also worked as a Pilates instructor and somatic fitness trainer. Michaela, Jay, and I went to visit with my yoga instructor, David Moreno. I'm David Moreno, and mostly I teach therapeutic yoga 
and have taught yoga for a long, long time, almost 30 years. But I've always done other things around that a lot, including in San Francisco, I do a lot of dance criticism and performing arts criticism and journalism. So I review, write about, do that. That's always been a passion of mine. And part of that is because I danced before I started doing yoga a thousand years ago. So it kind of led into one thing led into the other. What kind of dance were you trained in? Oh my gosh, I was, you know, I studied ballet, modern jazz, but I ended up doing mostly like fringe dance theater and musicals and traveling shows and that kind of production mostly. That's amazing. Some opera, some civic light opera, musicals. Stuff oh my like that. gosh. That's fantastic. Wow. So you've always been in body awareness. In a way, yeah. That and like design and art, they kind of always been back and forth. And are you originally from California? Los Angeles. Los Angeles, yeah, okay. Born downtown LA. And how did you come to the Bay Area? I first came to San Francisco in the mid 70s to study with Anna Halperin as part of a independent study program and the Firesign Theater back in the day and would come and do independent studies up here. And then I was living in Santa Fe for a long time. And everything's a long time at this point in my life, (laughs) not like last week. Um, And I had this sort of mystical experience with this yoga Ayurvedic teacher and ended up casually, randomly meeting him in L.A. just by chance. And he was opening a studio here and I wanted to study with him. And so I ended up back in the Bay and have been here ever since. Wow. Did you first land in San Francisco proper? Uh, No, I was always in the East Bay pretty much and then taught in San Francisco, went back and forth. Okay. It was a funny thing though, because coming from Los Angeles and having studied up here and my family used to come up a lot as well to see relatives, but I never realized how much more a Bay Area person I was than from Southern California. I never really resonated with LA, even though I grew up there. It was just kind of like taken for granted. And when I got here, it's like, oh yeah, I understand this culture better. I understand a lot about San Francisco that feels easier for me here. So, And why do you think that is? I just think there's a little bit more, well, uh, diversity is so overused, but creative diversity. And, you know, in L.A., there's a certain look. People just always say, oh, that's so L.A., and I never knew what that meant until I lived in Santa Fe for a long time. And so then when I got back to L.A., I go, oh, that is so L.A. (laughs) You know, just the whole mix of people and the creativity that goes on in San Francisco is so different from L.A., even though there's a lot that goes on in L.A., I just resonate more up here. More up here, yeah. Yep. Would you say the people are a little more grounded up here? Mm, I would say that the people up here are not all in the film business. Yes. <laughs> and so they don't talk, look yeah. all the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not about your newest car up here as much as it is in L.A. Yeah. That answers my question. Thank you. I think we all feel similarly. (laughs) Okay. So I want to hear a little bit about your yoga journey, leaving dance and going to yoga. Right. What inspired you to study and what kind of study did you do and what do you teach now? What do I teach now? Wow. Going for all the big questions. (laughs) Um, Well, I did dance professionally in L.A. It's so funny because I thought, like, I don't want to teach dance classes the rest of my life, right? (laughs) Because if you're not in Vegas or doing a show or in a company, what are you doing? You're teaching dance classes. And so I've ended up teaching yoga classes instead. But there's something more significant to that for me than dance in that sense. 
I was introduced to yoga from a colleague who was a dancer who started teaching some yoga classes. And so I started taking class with her. And that was in Los Angeles again, like during the like mid to late 70s when there was like one or two yoga studios in the city the size of LA. Wow. And that was only so many hours a day. You know, it wasn't like you had seven hours, 24 hours a day or seven days a week like we do now. And so I started, and it was always in between things because it took so much effort to get to a class or to really study with somebody. And then when I moved to Santa Fe, it was easier for me to find a class. I didn't have to drive across LA at rush hour to get to a class. And at that time, also, there were only a few teachers offering classes in Santa Fe. And there was only Iyengar yoga offered primarily, which is like pretty much throughout the United States. There were certain waves of different styles of yoga that were offered over time. And so I started with Iyengar yoga, which to me always felt like a ballet class. So it was like you were always working at the bar, but you never really got to dance across the room, you know? And then I came across a teacher who was introducing to the community Ashtanga yoga, which felt much more like dance, felt much more like jazz, felt much more like, oh, we get to move, we get to sweat, it's challenging, oh my God, and got sucked in that way. And then ended up studying with T.S. Little in Santa Fe for at least five years. And then he went off to India, which you did then. You wanted to go deep in your practice. You went to India and you studied with the few main masters there. And at that time, he like tossed me the keys and said, okay, we're going to India for a month. Have fun. Teach these <laughs> classes. And, and that's how I uh, started teaching. Wow, so you kind of throwing it? Well, you know, of course I was ready. To, I mean, I wanted to. And this is so interesting. This is like mid-90s. And there was so much that wasn't like commercialized back then. Things were so much easier in a way. Yeah. yeah. And who were the people doing yoga then? Was it mainly dancers like yourself or? Mm, no, I think, you know, at that time, a lot of people would go to India and you would go and study for a month to three months there. So there were really these diehard, like, yeah, into yoga and into the spiritual vibe of yoga and doing, the, you know, and studying with a teacher and doing that. You either usually Hardcore. studied with Iyengar or you studied with Patavi Joyce. That was pretty much it. And then other people would go out to find other teachers that were also offering through different schools of yoga. But I do know a lot of my colleagues at my age level and at my years of teaching often come from dance backgrounds. And it just, you know, it was just a natural. I mean, you already had some body awareness and then it was like, oh yeah, we're used to being like, you know, if you were doing ballet, you were getting disciplined anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, Ashtanga and Iyengar were not that much <laughs> different. You were still being put upon to show up and be your best, you know. Right. So I, I do happen to know several dancers that came into yoga from dance. And would you, I guess the root of my question is that, I mean, I do yoga. Susan does yoga. Jay. I used to do yoga. Used to do yoga. <laughs> but his clients are very yoga. Sure. Usually. <laughs> At least, I feel like most people right. who are athletes do some form of yoga now. today mod mm -hmm. in the modern yep. time. Yep. And so I'm curious about how, when you started, what it was like here in the Bay Area, you know, more about the, I think it's really interesting that it's dancers or hardcore people who completely embodied yoga then, rather than it just being like, oh, I'm, I'm yeah, going to work out and a, do yoga this as week. A, as an add-on to yeah. your other your workout program. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe a better question is, yeah. when did you see that shift and how did that sort oh of Oh my shift? God, that shift happened pretty quick, I think so. When I started teaching in the 90s, I was 
able to start traveling and teaching domestically in different states as well as internationally. Like people like, hey, I'm coming to Europe to do this. Do you want me to come? Yes. And once I got my foot in one door, I would ask another studio. And they wanted, they were hungry for people to come out and do that was not something that was so common. There wasn't everything online. So like having a teacher show up and be in your space and teach was really the way to go. And I happened to be on that wave. I was like the senior teachers. And then I was like on the next wave of that and was able, because of that timing was sought after and made my way around the world a couple of times teaching yoga. Wow. Wow, That's incredible. You know, I mean, I wasn't retiring from it, but I was having a great time traveling around the world and more people, the next wave were coming going, oh yeah, we want to do that. So like it, then it was becoming like, okay, I want to teach yoga so I can travel around the world. I want to teach yoga so I can do this. I want to teach, you know, and it, it definitely became more and more commercial from the mid to late nineties into the early twos, you know, it just started really becoming so different. And that's a whole nother story. Yeah. Is it? Or do you want to? It's a wanna, big story. Is it a no, bit, yeah. I mean, no, we I could just, talk about it. It just is. It's, um, <laughs> the focus is so different. I mean, like right now, I feel like most people are learning yoga through TikTok. Mm. And, and TikTok. It, yeah. Well, everybody's got or Instagram. Everybody's yeah, sure. got their little clip up and just do this and just do that. And I think it's geared for a certain generation. And they're kind of like talking to themselves and feeding a loop about that. And yoga to me has always been much more multi-generational. And not everybody's, an, so many people are experts. Like everybody's giving advice, like you have back pain, do this. You have knee pain, do this. You know, it's like, that is so different from how I was taught or what my views are on yoga. Whereas I have to know the person, I have to know the situation. This comes from an Ayurvedic viewpoint as well, which is for whom and when. How old is the person? What are the circumstances? What did this person need? How do you work with this? It's not like do this. I feel like there's so much snake oil being sold on social media right now. Sure. You know, do this. One size fits all. And one size does not fit all from an Ayurvedic or yogic view. You know, it's really like for whom and when. And it's a practice. It's not a And it's a practice. Exactly. And it's going to change. And as I get older, it's like my practice changes. You know, I'm not doing the same things. And and it's like some of that, there's grief around letting it go. Like, okay, I'm not doing that fabulous thing anymore. That was a lot of fun, but I'm just adapting and finding ways to continue to be in the practice without doing something I was doing 30 years ago. Parts of it, yes, I'm still doing, but a lot of it I'm not. And that's Whereas some more, I teach more of a somatic approach also at this point because I have other modalities that I've studied. So they kind of feed into it as well. Full disclosure, for the listeners, I take your class uh, pretty religiously. And I have been for at least a couple of years, maybe two, maybe three. And I take your class because I love the therapeutic part and I love the healing part. I find it incredible and something that I don't dare miss. I have missed a couple classes, but I usually don't dare miss. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by Ayurvedic and what does that mean? Well, one of the key principles of Ayurvedic from how I was taught is this question for whom and for when. And I think that just applies to so many things. So I'm not going to teach the same class in summertime when we're having fires and it's dry and everybody's already at ends because we're just being affected by our environment and it's hot and this and that. I'm not going to teach the same class that I would teach at that moment that I would 
when we're having floods and rain and the, it's a different season. I mean, there's seasonal changes that Absolutely. affect our body, affect our emotions, affect everything. And so I try to take those things into account and like do, because uh, yoga is always trying to bring balance to things. It's always trying to take that which is out of balance and find a way to bring it into balance. And that's the same principles of Ayurveda, you know, find what's out of balance, bring it into balance as best as we can. And so I'm much more spontaneous about like, okay, what are the ingredients here? It's like being a chef. Here are the ingredients. Okay, what do we need to do with this to make something happen? And that's where teaching is creative for me. Whereas if I'm teaching a routine, that this is like a Bikram's class or something where that, even a Shtanga where this is the routine. Now there's so much, I'm, I'm not going to compare those two, but there's so many systems that you just teach a routine. And I go going like, yeah, AIs, come on in. You can teach this class in a second. You don't need to know anything about the people here. You don't need to know anything about time of day or season or anything. And you can yell at people. You can just <laughs> scream it out and put some groovy music on yeah. or play your harmonium and it'll be a groove and people will love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one size fits all, which is a Western approach. And that's never been an Eastern approach, which is where this, all these systems come from. What you just said hit me so deeply in my heart because I am just learning now in my ripe old age of 38 that we're humans and we live seasonally and learning to just be okay with okay, we're going to maybe not be as productive during the dark winter months. And maybe we need more activity during the summer, you know, just like natural seasonality of being a human and not just sticking to a routine day in and day out and expecting us to thrive. You know, you have to mold into the season of living, even in a seasonless place as, the, as San Francisco. Right. <laughs> it still, like, it oh still has baby season. Right. So I think that's 100% the magic that it sounds like you bring to your practice and well, your people. Well, you know, it's, it's like this analogy to cooking. It's yeah. like you have seasonal fruits and vegetables. And so you make pies or you do this or, because that's what's showing up in that cycle. Now, there's a lot to be said for consistency and having a routine that everybody loves. Like, okay, we know how this goes, you know. And I mean, I'm really grateful for my students because I'm always throwing different things in. It's like, okay, now we're going here and they have to pay attention. They have to show up. They can't just come into the class and just do what they did in the last 10 classes. They have to actually, what's he doing? Where, how are we doing that? You know, they have to pay attention that way. And check in instead of check in. And some people love that and some people it totally annoys them, you know, because <laughs> because they just want to do a routine. Just come in, do this, feel this way, go home. And I'm too much at the end of that spectrum to want to cater to that. It's really great because for someone who's been practicing for a long time, in the beginning of mastery, it's really about just learning the moves, right? And then I think this is based on Japanese learning, and that is at some point you break apart, you break free, and you start to play jazz and develop mm -hmm. and transcend the practice. Once you have the foundations. Exactly. Right. And now people are improvising without a foundation. That's, right. That's my observation mm -hmm. of what's Absolutely. going on. Absolutely. But I am noticing from just noticing you and your trajectory that you're in that stage of improvisation. And that really brings us to the development of more yoga. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Can you say a little bit oh, more? Oh, yeah, exactly. So my last name is Moreno. So the first four letters are more, right? And so I thought to be funny, just when I had it back in the 80s, when I had to come up with a website, I would just do more yoga. So, and then I dropped the E because there was a prop company that. <laughs> so I just did M O R yoga. I wasn't trying to brand myself or doing it because everybody was branding themselves. You know, you have so many different types of yoga and it's always after the person's name and stuff. And that seems just so contrary to me. But I did more yoga. And then when I taught in Hong Kong one time at an international yoga conference, they had David Moreno, more yoga. I thought that was so funny that they actually put the type of yoga as more yoga, <laughs> you know. And, and, and now it's like even funnier because people go like, well, what kind of yoga do you teach? I go like, well, actually, more yoga. It's because it's the, it is a blend. It's a right. blend of Pilates, somatic fitness, Qigong, Ayurveda. You know, it's 35 years or so of incorporating these things. And that's just one path. I'm not saying it's the definitive one. It's the one that works for me and keeps me engaged. For somebody else, one path and one thing doing over and over again is going to work for them the best. Yeah, and that's the evolution of David Moreno. Yeah, right. more yoga. More yoga. And (laughs) and speaking of evolution and the commercialization, you know, on one hand, for those who are purists, we'd be like, oh, man, this is so commercialized. Right. And this is kind of off topic, but somewhat related. You know, it is Pride Month as well. And the younger generation, I've heard from members of my studio to just friends of mine, they don't like celebrating Pride Month because it's too commercialized. Mm. And this might not be shared for everyone, so it's not to be taken as a sweeping generalization. But for the older generation, it's not a bad thing because it's an acknowledgement. More and more people are on board. So in a sense, going back to yoga... The commercialization is now opening doors for therapeutic yoga and yoga in a medical setting. Can you speak to that evolution? Like, is that better that we're now being widely accepted? Like the 80-year-old to the 20-year-old is now doing yoga? Or should we go back to mastering the foundations? Mm. It's not really up for me to say. (laughs) Sure. In a way, you know, I mean, I certainly have my views about it. I think it's always beneficial that people come to yoga and that they can find the benefits of it. But I think that also depends greatly on how it's taught to you. And just because everybody's getting it, what's the quality of what they're getting? You know, that's what would be my question is like, yeah, it's available everywhere and you can buy yoga blocks at Walgreens and everything else. But I don't know. I mean, I think it's a good thing. I'm just a stickler to like the quality of what's really being offered. And, you know, we remove so many elements of it to make it more accessible, right? That's always what happens. Things that get dumbed down in order to be more accessible. There's always something lost and something gained in that. What's gained is more people who have access to yoga. What's lost in that are some of like the lifestyle that surrounded yoga, right? So we've taken out a component of yoga, which is the physical aspect of it. And it's not sustained in a lot of ways, by the lifestyle, the practices that support that physical practice that are much more subtle and much more spiritual. That's actually well said. Mm-hmm. Because well, it's surprising to me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's absolutely well said in that there is always going to be a plus and a minus to both things, right? And to have an even look at both ends. On one hand, it's in the hospital, right? On the other hand, we're missing the whole other piece, the whole person, the right. spirituality, the lifestyle, the seasonality even. 
you know, I do exercise therapy. I help injured athletes. And in the wintertime, we don't do high-intensity work, <laughs> right? Our body's cold. We focus on really going deeper, going slower, going heavier like that. So thank you for providing the answer to a question that's not easy to answer, but one that I continue to struggle with from time to time. So I had a question kind of on the same vein. And part of the reason why I'm here is because I met Jay because I was injured. And what Jay, I don't know if he even remembers this, but he basically told me that I over yoga Mm -hmm. Easily. You have the type of body from an Ayurvedic view that would over yoga, that would overstretch, that's hyper flexible, that doesn't know where the boundaries are. Exactly. And so somebody else like Jay knows what his range is and mm -hmm. works within that. Right. So I, t yeah, I totally. Yeah. yeah totally and that's a hundred percent what happened. He's right. like, you're a wet noodle and you overstretched yourself yeah. and you got to chill out. Yeah. And it, it kind of. <laughs> that's what I said, I guess. It's exactly very, um, <laughs> very professional. <laughs> Dr. Jay. <laughs> no, he was much more professional than that. But the takeaway for me were a couple of things. It was number one, wow, okay. I had this routine of this certain type of yoga that I was doing and it broke my heart a little bit to be like, well, now what am I going to do? Right. What I should have done was find you <laughs> <laughs> to reteach me how to do the practice based on my body type, which sounds like is what more yoga is definitely what well, it's about. you know, I work with injury also and I work with professional athletes and the whole thing as well. And we always have a proclivity and we have a certain way of doing things and we just want to do more of that. And then something happens like an injury and we have to go like, oh, I have to rethink this. And the thing that's always bothered me is that people go like, oh, I did this to my hamstring or, oh, I did this to my wrist or I did this to my knee and now I can't do yoga. Well, you've been taught yoga in a commercial setting. You can't do that routine that you've been doing. But that's because you don't know the full range of what yoga has to offer. There's so many alternatives. There's so many levels so that you can be doing yoga when you're 85 or 16 or whatever. It's going to adjust to you because it's a comprehensive system. I see this over and over again. People, oh, I can't do yoga because I say, no, you can do yoga. You need to know what kind of yoga is beneficial for you. And when we go to a public class, it's one size fits all. Everybody's trying their best and you can tell a class a thousand times, do what's best for you or make sure that you're safe. But if we knew how to take care of ourselves and if we knew how to be safe with ourselves or treat ourselves kindly, we wouldn't be having most of the injuries and things that we're going through all the time anyway. Well, it's kind of a little bit of an ego when you're in a of class course, and you're like, I'm so good. Look at what I can and do. And the beautiful thing about a class <laughs> is the energy there. Right. I just came back from a meditation retreat in the Santa Cruz Mountains this weekend. I was there for like five days and, you know, I'm sitting with 40 people in a room. And that meditation is so much more comprehensive and juicy and challenging and everything else because there's 40 people in that room sitting and not talking and just being there. That's so powerful. It's like I have my own practice that I do daily and it's never that big because it's not a retreat setting, you know, and, and it's not being supported by the community. So there is the benefit of going into a public class where you do have community and there's more energy there. There's more people there. Everybody tries to do their best, whether that's trying to show off your best or if it's just forcing yourself to push yourself a little bit more because that's where we're going. So there's great benefit to community, for sure. The sangha is everything. The community is everything.
there's something beautiful about that. And then, of course, like we said a minute ago, the downside of that is trying to keep up with the community or trying to do what's beyond your range right now. It's hard to be in a class where everybody's doing something and you have to nurse your injury or you have to be more pulled back or more gentle here. You know, that takes a lot because we're comparing ourselves to everyone the whole time. So the plus and minus is community will help sustain and can help support and can help encourage and inspire. And at the same time, being reliant on that alone and trying to keep up with it when it's not time for you to keep up with it is going to work against you at the same rate. It can be a challenge if you are so used to being to do something and all of a sudden you can't because you are a little bit injured or something has to heal. You work with an athlete, like you just right. said. You work with an athlete who's like, you know, state of the art, ready to do anything, and then you can't, and it's like, oh my God. It's like having them just settle down, having them just do something quieter. That's going to challenge everything in them. One, because we identify with ourselves as an athlete or a dancer or a yogi or whatever. We have the identity around it, and therefore we feel like we're going to suffer. Our identity is going to be lost if we can't do that thing. Yeah. That's a real game changer. And it needs to be. It's supposed to be. Because even if you're able to sustain good health and fitness your entire life, you're still going to get old and die. Bottom line, sooner or later. So how do we adjust? Is this only for 30-year-olds? So that brings me to my next question. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I I had the pleasure of going on your deliberate stillness Mm. meditation retreat. How did you come up with that and why? Tell them. Well, okay. Well, thank you for that. (laughs) And thank you for coming. So deliberate stillness, most yogis, again, generalization, a lot of the people that come to public classes, I would say the percentage that have sustained meditation practices, daily meditation practice, as well as physical practice, is probably a lot smaller than the number that are doing physical practice. And that could be physical anything. And so I think there's nothing more radical. Like I just said, I was at this retreat with 40 people. To be able to sit in stillness, we're so used to manipulating, doing everything through our talking, and we're always trying to get something, and we're always trying to maneuver something, and everybody's got their story, and you know all this stuff that goes on when we're interacting with people. Just sit in a room with 40 people not talking, and just be in your awareness, in your energetic body, and just really coming to terms with all that's going to go on in that when we take away all the distractions. That, to me, is like one of the most radical things we can do on the planet. Really. I mean, just imagine if everyone just for a day stopped and just I'm thinking of a holiday, the New Year's in Bali, Nippi, I think it's called, where the airport's actually closed. Like you have your Mardi Gras like the day before. And then they have a day where you don't leave the house and you don't cook everything's that you've cooked the food the day before. So you're supposed to like just chill out and not really be doing anything. I mean, they close an international airport for that day. Imagine if around the world, everybody closed their international airport for 24 hours. It was like when COVID hit, we all had to go inside and everything changed. It's like, oh my God, you know. But it can happen and we did it. It, We did it, right? We totally did it. (laughs) Right? We were forced to do it. Forced. Right? So they at least can choose to do it here. But um, there's something so radical and so beautiful about that. But I also have this dancer yoga background and love the internal dance as well. 
And so the intention of the deliberate stillness retreat is to create a way of practicing together that involves sitting practice as well as movement practice. And I will use any modality I want to that brings us into that state where we can transition from sitting meditation to moving and back again without having it feel so drastic. Because integration is the primary key of any spiritual practice, any athletic practice, anything that you ever want to do. If you don't integrate it, it's only staying at a certain level, right? It doesn't have the fullness. So in other words, I can go meditate up in the Himalayas for a year and then come back and get in my car and like have road rage. There's no integration there unless I have to learn how to have that meditative experience while I'm in the car. And believe me, as mostly Sicilian, driving <laughs> driving, and is like my practice. It's like, okay, just leave them alone. It's just like, don't do that. You know, I really have to watch it. You know, it's really kind of funny to me. I'm always glad it's not my student that I'm conking the horn at. But um, uh, yeah, so integration is everything. So this particular retreat that Susan mentioned is one where it's a day long. Sometimes it's a weekend. And just going in and out of practices that make the meditation process a little bit more seamless in terms of how we go into it, how we come out of it, how we can stay in that process and move, how, how movement can deepen that awareness, can deepen the meditative experience, as opposed to be something that's completely separate from it. So it's done mostly for integration. Sign me up. We are coming up on time. So okay. uh, does anyone else have any burning questions? Well, I, don't, I guess I don't have a burning question. I just wanted to verify how radical, to use your term, that this integration sounds just from a, a person who I do have a daily meditation practice. And it is removing it from my little seat outside in the morning with my coffee to, yes, while I'm driving and I have road rage. And being able to have that tool in my back pocket and just turn it on and turn it off, I think is the hardest thing about meditation. And this sounds incredible. In the Hindu stories, there's often a deity that will take the form of the old woman or of the mad dog or whatever it is, right? And it's always like, how do you respond to that? And then after you go to do some rage with them, they reveal themselves. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, it's a deity, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> busted, you know? <laughs> So, yeah, other cars, same thing. <laughs> amazing. And to be able to have that practice, if we can just like tie things back into San Francisco, because I know that's probably how we want to end this chat. The city has a lot going on. The people of the city are very creative, have a lot going on. And it feels like most people have body awareness and are interested. I feel like most people do yoga in San Francisco. Can I just like put that out there? Uh, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, we can believe that. Like, I sure. feel like that that's part of what it is. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I mean, what do you is think? that your last question? That's my last oh, question. No. Is that I, I'd love to just hear. So you live here because you love it here and, and you feel just a reiterate what you said earlier, that you feel more connected to this community. Can you just talk a little bit about the yoga community in the city, in the Bay Area? I think there's a resurgence going on in the city right now. So many studios closed, including some of the keystones of the yoga community closed, and they are slowly reopening. And some of them are privately owned. You know, they're not conglomerate owned like they were previous to the COVID experience, like 
I, uh, I can't say certain you names. Need to name them. <laughs> yeah, I won't name them. Yeah. Um, but you know, they had at least eight or nine studios, and that was not even uh, the corporate thing. I mean, some of them were bought out. But there is this resurgence going on where some of those studios are reopening. Some of even the older teachers are coming back to them. They seem to be mostly being managed more as a collective in some respects. So there's definitely a movement away from just having this owned by some, you know, hedge fund, which basically happened. I mean, right before COVID, a lot of these things, basically, if you tracked all the way through the ownership, there was a hedge fund that owned this yoga studio somewhere along the line. And I think that's changing right now. I think that's because things are more localized. Some of those old spaces are being reused and repurposed, but for yoga again. Wow. So that's exciting. That's really exciting that those old spaces are being reopened because people have such fond feeling for them, Mm -hmm. including the one that your mom used to dance Mm -hmm. at, right? That's over there being used again. So that's what I'm aware of that's going on. It's smaller. It's still, it's going back into the homegrown. And those were the people that were hit the hardest too, right? Because it was the little studios that closed like instantly and the bigger corporations held on as long as they could. And then eventually started streamlining everything until they had to go bankrupt. So that is definitely happening, and I, I think that's a great thing. Yeah. And I, is that when you started your online classes? During COVID, during COVID, yeah, which was an enormous experience for me as a teacher because yoga has never been able to pay their instructors. You know, here I was, somebody that had been teaching for already 25, 30 years, and I was still, like, making what I was making 10 years ago. Amazing. Well, basically, because, like, few studios could afford to pay teachers what they deserve. Right and still keep their doors open. So by going online, all of a sudden I was getting paid directly and it was like, oh my gosh, I'm finally making a healthy living as a yoga professional. So that was one of the benefits to come out of that. And now that's changing because everything's starting to open. People are more offline, but I still have an international following because all my students that moved away or had studied with me here or there are able to drop in on Saturday morning when Susan's in class. I have her, I have her come up and smile for everybody. (laughs) They all know Susan as the woman with the greatest smile. And so they all know her from around the world now because of her smile. You're international. So. And I'm notoriously late, uh-huh. but, but David is very forgiving because he says, if it wasn't for that smile, I would be pissed. But I'm not <laughs> you're smiling. Uh, oh, you well, do have a great smile. Thanks. Yeah. It's genuine. It is genuine. And on that note, I think what's being spoken is really what's happening, and that is we're reintegrating back into life as we're coming offline in some cases, and also integrating an international community to be able to meet at one time, one place, all across the world. So that's fantastic. It is fantastic. It's been really a surprise. Yeah. David, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Beyond Fog Radio. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you so much, David. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Kayla, as a yogi who practices meditation often, what did you think? I think I'm ready to sign up for one of David's retreats. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I agree. I was so inspired by what he shared that I started to refer some of my clients to David. Did you really? Oh my God, that's so great. I said, hey, go check out his online class. It sounds amazing. Hopefully a few of my clients have taken that. Yeah. And what he said 
about being able to have yoga. Yoga is a system, right? And that you have the system work for your body, Mm -hmm. right? And like the Ayurvedic approach, which is context is important, right? Time, place, season, all of it. He brings that outlook and priority at the forefront. I have a deep respect for that, which is why I could trust someone like David to work with some of our clients. That's so cool. Well, because you have a similar mindset in the work that you do, Jay, is you are also very calculative in the history of everyone's personal physical background, like what they've been doing their whole... I mean, when I first met with you, you're like, what were you doing when you were 10? Like, what? Why? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, what sports did you do when you were a kid? You know, like, it's all very, yeah. it we're, all works together in the history of our bodies yes. because we hold on to so many things. Yes. And the way that David approaches and you approach is very holistic and so fascinating. I think the way that David coaches yoga is very much true to the personality of the person rather than just going to a class with a bunch of people. You do exactly. all the same poses. They don't really care. They're just like, do it, sweat, done, out. Yeah, no. Not into that anymore. Maybe mm-hmm. like 20-year-old Michaela was into that, but no, I'm into new new style. Exactly. Why and do you, why do you love him so much? I love him so much because he's really funny, but I also love him because he describes the poses that he's mm. teaching really well and he weaves in regular things like he's like you're holding a plate. Mm. You're passing out sausages <laughs> and you don't need that the sausages are not going to spill on the ground. So the palm stays up the whole time, goes behind your head, reach for the back of, of your child and make sure they don't fall over. And because of that, imagery, you it makes it really makes you go, you know what? He's right. Yeah. I'm not going to. I'm always passing out sausages passing- to people. <laughs> <laughs> so he weaves in everyday yeah. life and so that you can Visualize. envision what you're doing and not drop that tray. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. It's so cool. He's one of my favorite yoga instructors. Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy that we got to meet him. I can't wait to work. I do really, I would like to work with him. And I think everybody who's listening to this should probably meet David. (laughs) Agree. Agree. So, you know, we talk to a lot of really amazing people like every week, more amazing than the last week. And it just continues. So the next episode, who is that amazing person. Well, next week we have a conversation with Dr. Brad Jacobs to continue on our health, wellness, food, drink, and also even part of the inspiration from the previous series, which is innovation. Mm. We thought of Dr. Brad Jacobs because he's at the forefront of integrative medicine, where we take, just like David Moreno, take into account the entire human, yes. their history, their body, and then deliver medicine from a different place than what most of us in the country are used to. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, it's going to be a good one. I'm excited. It's going to be a good one. So subscribe to listen to that episode to get notifications and to listen to the history of the Bay Area told by all of these wonderful humans that we have living here. (laughs) So amazing humans. And to see them, see their faces and where we're going to be or where we are actually interviewing them, you can check those out on our social media. We are at Beyond the Fog Radio. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, take care now. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.
Beyond the Fog Radio would not be possible without the amazing help from Connor Chang, Arliss Hayes, Tim O'Shea, and Tim Johnson. We want to thank our partner, San Francisco Magazine, and our sponsors, Bill O'Keefe, Michael Baines, and Brenda Wright. Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2023.